This is Jack Ayer. Uh, we're here for another podcast from the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today we'll be talking with Steve Case, Managing Director and General Counsel of Cohen & Company Limited, uh, formerly a partner in the New York law firm of Davis Polk & Wardwell. Steve Case's career has given him a front row seat in many of the pivotal episodes in modern bankruptcy history, including the run-up to the 2005 BAPTA amendments and a number of pivotal Chapter 11 cases. Uh, Steve Case, welcome to ABI Podcast. Uh, good morning. Happy to be here. Okay. Steve, is it true that your law practice experience goes back to the 1870s? Uh, 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 1970s. 1970s, okay. But we were talking about the 1870s yesterday when we talked about some of your work early on in um, the Penn Central bankruptcy, right? Yes, indeed. Correct. Mm-hmm. Briefest on Penn Central for starters here. We're good, uh, we may be dealing with people who don't remember Penn Central. Well... Uh, I think the, what you need to remember, which is a lead-in to the answer to your question, but mm-hmm. I'm not dodging it, but I want to make a, a lead-in. <laughs> oh, dodge away. <laughs> is that from the late 1930s until the filings of the various Northeastern railroads, including Penn Central in June of 1970, mm-hmm. you could count the number of large-size business bankruptcies in the United States on the fingers of one hand. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, when your Air Force and your Army destroy the industrial base of Europe and China in World War II, the only mistake that can be made by business managers in the U.S. in the post-war era was to make excessive pension commitments that would produce their companies going into bankruptcy in the 80s, 90s, and 2000 era. But there were no business failures. So when the railroads all failed in the spring and summer of 1970, uh, the New York law firm community, uh, the, the big firms that catered to the financial intermediaries, there were only a few people around who'd ever worked on a big bankruptcy case. And they had been young men, in those days all men, who'd worked mostly on trolley cases in the 1930s. So a whole lot of the people who had careers in New York doing bankruptcy started uh, in the the railroad cases. And some worked on those cases and went on to other things, and some stayed with it, like me. Mm -hmm. And you were at at Davis Polk then? Yeah, I was in Davis Polk uh, for 36 years from 1968. How did you get involved in Penn Central? Uh, <laughs> I came back from a vacation, and one of my friends said, look out for so-and-so. The guy they've had working on Penn Central is quitting, and they got to get somebody else to do it. And, of course, you don't want to do it. <laughs> but I actually was interested in railroads. Well, that's the next thing. Did you not want to do it? Or did oh, I, the guy nearly fell out of his chair. I knew what he was going to ask me. He didn't know that I knew it. Mm-hmm. And when he said, would you mind doing it, I said, I'd love to do it. And he nearly fell out of his chair. It had a reputation for being a graveyard. Penn Central or the case? The railroad cases. Railroad cases. Uh, they went on. There was When Penn Central filed, Jack, mm-hmm. 
one of the creditors was the bankrupt estate of a railroad in Massachusetts called the Providence and Worcester Railroad Company, mm -hmm. which had been in bankruptcy since the 1930s. And they had never been able to finish the case. The government was a party, and one of the lawyers told me that because when the government is a party in those days, the railroad cases were all in district court, and the appellate time when the government was a party was extended from 30 days to 60 days. And there had been 20 or so appeals over the 30-plus year life of that case. And everybody waited till the 59th day. Mm -hmm. So they figured that just that one factor of the extra 30 days had added three years to the case. <laughs> yeah. So Penn Central must have been, by almost any measure at that point, the largest railroad system in the country. Would that be right? Or? Probably. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And yet, my recollection, and I was a total outsider at that time, was that it, it looked like, from an outsider's point, it looked like a pretty quick and efficient case. Oh, it could not be reorganized mm -hmm. on an income basis because mm -hmm. the railroad had um, uncurable uh, cash flow negative operations. Okay. Okay. Union, feather bedding. Excessive track that the old Interstate Commerce Commission wouldn't let them abandon, uh, passenger losses, and basically the case ended. All of us were kids representing indenture trustees for old railroad mortgages in New York, and mm -hmm. your question about the 1870s. One of the mortgages I represented was on the Mohawk and Malone Railroad from Syracuse to Utica, and it was written out by hand. It wasn't even typed or printed. All right. Okay. Got, got. But was it during Penn Central that we offloaded Amtrak onto the government? Amtrak came in uh, about a year and a half after the case was filed. The uh, morning that the hearing was held for Penn Central to go into Amtrak was the same morning that they announced the name Amtrak, and I'll never forget it, the Penn Central judge, Judge Fulham, they walked in and he said, gentlemen, I read the paper this morning. Why did you name your passenger railroad after a sheep disease? Yeah. <laughs> I got, I got. Um, but you also had, it seems to me like, an awful lot of valuable real estate in that case, didn't you? Well, uh, sure. I mean, the uh, right away from Grand Central Station in Manhattan up to uh, the northern, to where it crosses the East River, it was all owned by a subsidiary. Okay. But it had all been uh, leased out on ground leases to office building developers. Mm -hmm. And there later was litigation over whether the leases could be rejected. Mm -hmm. And Judge Fulham said, no, uh, we're not going to let you reject these leases just to make more money. Mm -hmm. Bankruptcy is a shield, not a sword. Mm -hmm. So is Penn Central a success? What what happened was all of us kids representing mortgage trustees said, Judge, you can't. We did for years. We kept saying, Judge, you can't reorganize this case, and it's unconstitutional to keep the then equivalent of the automatic stay on, and he would nod his head. And finally, after five years on his own in a very courageous judicial act, he just signed an order one day saying he had concluded that it couldn't be reorganized, and that if the government didn't do something to take it over and continue rail organizations on some date within a reasonable time, mm -hmm. he would order the railroad shut down and the assets liquidated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
that, there never would have been possible to have a political consensus for what became the uh, government takeover in Conrail, and more, much more importantly, two rounds of huge uh, legislative redo of the whole structure of railroad regulation in the U.S. Am I reading you right that you think it was the Penn Central bankruptcy on the judge's action in it that finally levered the reorganization of railroads via the government? Oh, no question about it. If he hadn't signed that order, they'd still be playing games with operating that company in, under the Bankruptcy Act. Mm -hmm. well, we talked about Penn Central, I know. Was, we chatted a bit yesterday. Was, was W.T. Grant your next big case? Yes. Okay. Tell us about W.T. Grant. It's long forgotten, I suppose, in most quarters. Well, what was interesting about that, it was a 1,000 stores. And it just uh, ran out of gas, couldn't get trade credit, uh, and the operation, they brought in new management, fine people, worked hard. But there was no way to see that the operations or the re-strategizing of the retail approach was ever going to uh, produce a successful chain. So the bank creditors moved to convert the case to Chapter 7. And there really wasn't very much opposition. And so the whole chain was liquidated. With pretty good results in the uh, going out of business sales of the inventory all around the United States. I was yeah, trying to recall now. I'll bet they're going to bankruptcy maybe summer of 75? With October 1975. October 75. And the liquidation starts or you convert to Chapter 7. What? Well, you, you, everybody, you know, in retail, uh, the, the fourth quarter is everything. So we ran the stores through the fourth quarter for holiday sales. Yeah. And if I remember, the liquidation started in February of 76. Okay. Was that the understanding going in? Was it a liquidation sale from the No, the... Experts, bankers, accountants were hired. The bankers hired uh, the leading retail analyst on Wall Street at the time, a man whose uh, name I can't recall, who was with the DLJ firm, and he advised them after a very thorough study that he didn't believe they could rejigger the operation to become profitable. There was a proposal made privately to the management to do a small regional reorganization chain, and the management didn't want to do a small store chain, so the whole thing was liquidated. We pause this week's podcast to bring you bankruptcy in the news. Congress continues to hold hearings and move forward on legislation to provide solutions to the subprime mortgage industry crisis. Looking to assist homeowners in bankruptcy, Senator Richard Durbin will introduce a bill that would permit Chapter 13 debtors to modify a mortgage on their primary residence to the property's fair market value. A draft of the bill, titled Helping Families Save Their Homes Act of 2007, would also waive BAPSIPA's counseling requirement for homes in foreclosure, prohibit mandatory arbitration claims in bankruptcy cases, and disallow secured claims where the lender violated certain provisions of the Truth in Lending Act or state law, among other provisions. The law would apply to pending cases and existing mortgages. The House of Representatives passed H.R. 1852, the Expanding American Home Ownership Act of 2007, 
to allow the Federal Housing Administration to serve more subprime borrowers at affordable rates and terms. The bill enables FHA to recapture borrowers that have turned to predatory loans in recent years and offer refinancing loan opportunities to borrowers struggling to meet their mortgage payments. Meanwhile, congressional hearings continue to look into the causes of the subprime industry crisis and potential solutions to help the millions of homeowners facing foreclosure to keep their homes. In the wake of the Federal Reserve's interest rate cut, the House Financial Services Committee will hold a hearing looking at minimizing mortgage foreclosures. Testifying at the hearing will be Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, HUD Secretary Alfonso Jackson, and Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke. This has been John Hartgen of the ABI. Thank you for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. And then in the early 80s, you, having cut your teeth on cases like this, you get involved in the asbestosis cases, don't you? <laughs> I remember. Okay, okay. Uh, would I be right that uh, Johns Manville in 1982 was the first of the big cases with a lot of asbestosis liability exposure? Uh, actually, it wasn't the first. Okay. There was a smaller case in Detroit called UNR that filed first. All right. Okay. And uh, both of them filed within a two or three months period in the summer of 1982. Were you involved in UNR? No. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But Manville filed a... Give me some dimensions on Manville at this point. Uh, well, at the time it filed, it was one of the Dow Jones 30 industrial companies. It had a couple of billion dollars a year in sales. Uh, there hadn't been any asbestos products for at least 10 years. It was in the fiberglass business and the roofing business primarily, but the cases were coming in at the rate of uh, five or 10,000 a month. The defense costs alone, just to administer the defense of these cases, was costing them $2 million a month. There was a recession. Um, Auto sales were down. A lot of their business was fiberglass for auto manufacturers. And they filed in August of 82, just in time. They never needed dip financing because all the receivables from the summer spring sales of building materials come in in September. So they had plenty of cash, and it was actually cheaper to defend the asbestos litigation and bankruptcy than it was to pay $2 million a month to run uh, lawyers defending what was at that time 50,000 active cases. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember as a Wall Street Journal reader in 81, 82, uh, reading the newspaper saying, no, no, we're not insolvent, we're not insolvent, we're not insolvent. Whoops, we're insolvent. Well, um, actually, their own announcement was that they were insolvent on a balance sheet basis, uh, comparing the reserve they had to create under the financial accounting rules asbestos liability compared to the book value of their assets, what that PR was intended to convey was that the left side of the balance sheet, the business operations that were making fiberglass and quality roofing materials, were better and stronger than ever, and that this was a problem of who had what rights to it, not to whether the business was unsound. Maybe you just said this, that the, uh, not an operating revenue basis. They were 
pretty good company all along. Sure. Uh, if you ignore reserves for litigation and just looked at the revenue from operations and the cost of operations, it was always a profitable company. Okay. okay. Give me a capsule on Manville. It files in 1982. How do you tell the story from start to finish? Well, I mean, that I could go on all day about that. The basic problem was the latency period for asbestos. Uh, in World War II in Richmond, California, Brooklyn, New York, and other places, they were building Liberty ships in less than 30 days. The guys were in the holds, engine rooms of ships with the ceiling on and the hatches closed. The only technology that would allow superheated steam was an asbestos insulation technology, and to get the ships done, the guys would be in there with chainsaws cutting this asbestos pipe when the holds were closed. There are pictures of them walking out of the shipyards so covered with asbestos they look like snowmen. And it takes 30 years for the accumulation of non-biodegradable asbestos in your lungs to turn into disease. So by around 1982, the big onslaught of asbestosis and mesothelioma uh, had hit. And uh, it was just more than a $2 billion company like Manville, which operated the biggest asbestos mine in North America, could handle. So it was just a classic case of a, of a small business operation trying to deal with overwhelmingly large litigation liability. And to get, it took a while to convince the plaintiff's attorneys, very able attorneys, sad, nice people, that uh, this bankruptcy was good for them because it kept the golden goose laying the golden eggs to pay them. And they ended up owning 80% of the company. And the whole company basically ever since has been primarily run for the benefit of the victims through the trusts that were created in the reorganization. Now, a few years ago, uh, Warren Buffett, Mr. Munger and Berkshire Hathaway bought the company. So the golden goose that's now laying the eggs is the investment of the cash that Berkshire Hathaway paid for it. But it's the same idea. And, and, and eventually the plaintiff's lawyers caught on. And since Manville, I think I've read numbers that there have been upwards of 60 companies with asbestos liability who have gone into Chapter 11 and come out with one or another variation of the basic plan structure that ultimately worked for JM. Um, well, you said that convincing the plaintiff lawyers that it made sense to keep the golden goose alive, well, that wouldn't be quite right, though, would it? Because you've got those plaintiff lawyers who represent plaintiffs with known present claims, but then you've got all that army of unknown claims out there that... Um, um, they get nothing if the company is liquidated or reorganized before they come along. No, that's right. When uh, Manville filed, they had engaged a fabulous epidemiologist from Harvard Medical School, a man named Alec Walker, who later won a prize mm. when his work was published to come up with a forecast of how much asbestos disease there would be in the population. So in the summer of 1982, he predicts, at that time, my memory is getting clear. Manville had 45,000 pending cases. He predicted that through the end of the universe, 
in America there would be another 150,000 cases. Mm. And this was denounced by the plaintiffs as a fraudulent excuse to file a fraudulent bankruptcy. And, of course, he was, in fact, wrong. There have been over a million cases. Wildly underestimated. But the, the issue between the present claimants and the future claimants was all of these very able plaintiffs lawyers with their one-third contingent fee on all the present claims did not want to get their recoveries and their fees scaled back in order to create a reserve to pay the future claims. Well, Steve, is there a right way to settle the present claims versus future claims business? Well, I, what ultimately happened in Manville happened after the confirmation of the plan. And this is not a well-known story, and I'll try to keep it short. But Manville Trust, which assumed the liabilities after the plan, was litigating before Judge Weinstein in Brooklyn. And Judge Weinstein said, why doesn't the Manville Trust settle? And the answer was, well, we don't have any money. And then he discovered that right after the confirmation, the people running the trust, which wasn't Manville, had shoveled out most of the liquid assets to pay the cases that had been pending in 1982 when it's filed. And he hit the ceiling and said, what did they do that for? It should have been held back and prorated. And he used his powers in the, in the trial court to throw out all the trustees and put in a new group of trustees who immediately scaled back on what they were paying present claims to something like five cents. So the answer is the, the right way to do this, and it's what was done by Judge Fulham in Owens Corning, is 502C, do an estimation of all the claims, and uh, build your reorganization plan around that number, and pay all the claims the same percentage. We wanted to do that coming out of the Manville management, and our efforts to do a debtor plan that did that were totally roadblocked by the plaintiff's lawyer. Was Mandel a success? Well, I think so. I mean, you had a very sound business employing 15,000 American workers. It never missed a day of production. It never missed a payment of current taxes. While all the while, the legal professionals and their clients wrangled about who got the golden egg. I think that's what Chapter 11 is for. You got to remember, Jack, as we were discussing yesterday, that not a single since 1982, with 60 asbestos companies in Chapter 11, not a single one of them has been sold in a 363 sale out of bankruptcy, because everybody is afraid to buy because of successor liability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that may have been what I was struggling for before. Do you think anybody has found a successful or effective way of dealing with the successor liability problem yet, or is it just still there? Well, I think there are ways to do it. You'd have to do a 363 sale in conjunction with a class action, and it's just too cumbersome and complicated. Mm -hmm. Anyway, for good reasons or bad, then in the 19, well, I need to get my decades right, the 1990s, wouldn't it be? You got involved in the run-up to what became BAPCA. Yeah, I got a phone call one day. Would I be willing to be a senior advisor to the bankruptcy commission and work with the subgroups of three commissioners in charge of small business and statistics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I uh, enjoyed that opportunity uh, and uh, went to all, almost all the commission hearings all over the United States and um, had my shot at influencing the text of that report they came out with, which was thicker than the old Manhattan telephone. 
what did you learn? Well, that there were an awful lot of really um, committed, dedicated people at the commissioner level and an, a fabulous staff, a paid staff that was supporting them. And, of course, uh, a lot of what came out of it was controversial. The small business proposals that my group came out with, which basically got enacted as proposed, are very unpopular with many people. And uh, I'm still in touch with a couple of the commissioners, and they will tell you that the, uh, it's too bad that the divisions within the commission and the staff over consumer reforms were so difficult that the commission didn't come up with a compromise proposal, because I think they think that if the opposition to reform had been more practical, they would have come up with a compromise that was more debtor-friendly than what uh, came out of the uh, congressional uh, effort heavily lobbied by the credit card people, and in my opinion, quite unfriendly to the consumer debtor. Let's stick with small business for a minute there. You had you said hearings about small business cases around the country. What did you learn about small business cases from these hearings? Every, not a single person in uh, 8, 10, 12 hearings around the country came forward to say that 1978 version of Chapter 11 worked for small businesses. We had debtor lawyers saying they wouldn't do it because it was too expensive to do the disclosure statement. We had uh, Chapter 7 trustees come in and say that they had case after case where when they was converted, they learned that there was uh, inventory in the location and cash in the bank when the 11 was filed. And when it was converted, they couldn't find any of the money or any of the inventory. We had lawyers who admitted that they filed small businesses in 11 to avoid a trustee so that the creditors wouldn't get sued for preferences and so that the uh, debtor wouldn't get sued by the trustee, even though they knew there was no hope that this business would ever uh, continue. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was uh, uncontradicted that uh, uh, 1978-11 didn't work for small business. People were filing, operating without insurance, without paying taxes. It was a scandal. So refresh my memory. When you talk about your recommendations for small business, what specifically do you mean? Well, uh, basically it puts tight, it requires much more U.S. trustee supervision, mandatory dismissal if they don't have insurance and don't file reports, puts short time deadlines on getting reorganized, I mean, if you have a seven-employee ethnic restaurant, it doesn't need a three-year period in Chapter 11. You can find out pretty quickly whether that's going to be reorganized. We put, they put in uh, at the Commission's recommendation provisions for combining disclosure statements and plans and short-form disclosure statements to reduce the cost. Is it your view that Congress did pretty much what you were recommended? Yes. And do you think they did right? Well, I was convinced that uh, a significant reform was needed in Small Business Chapter 11. Uh, a man named Hendel from Worcester, Mass., very fine lawyer, was arguing to the commission that a much better solution than a tighter Chapter 11 
would have been to expand Chapter 13 for small business. At that time, I was just beginning to teach Chapter 13 uh, in law school, and I didn't understand it as well as I do now. I now wish that more attention had been given to his proposal to use a kind of a of a Chapter 13 approach for small business. You know likely to produce more for creditors than liquidation without putting the guy out of business. Um, let's turn to consumer cases a bit. I know that wasn't your primary brief, but as you said, um, you're teaching some consumer law now, aren't you? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I'm sorry. I said let's turn to consumer case for a minute. I know that's not your primary brief, but I gather you said you're teaching some consumer law now. Oh, that? yeah, I've been teaching uh, the consumer part of a bankruptcy 101 course at Georgetown my co-teacher, Mark Ellenberg, does Chapter 11. And so I have enjoyed uh, all that I've had to learn about the consumer in order to try to do something useful for all these fine, bright students that sign up for the course at the law school. Yep. So tell me about um, consumer and FAPTA. Well, what you had was a determined group of commissioners supported by a very able group of staff people who thought that the function of the commission was to prevent any pro-creditor change in consumer bankruptcy. And there were also some commissioners who were neutral about it and some commissioners who thought that there ought to be major reform. And the result was a stalemate and a lot of uh, name-calling that went back and forth in the final uh, report. Uh, so the, basically the commission offered nothing to Congress about how to address the tensions about consumer bankruptcy in the United States. Do you think Congress got consumer right in the 2005 amendment? Oh, uh, reasonable people can differ about that. I think they uh, tilted too far on the pro-creditor side. I think the uh, dollar amount on the means test is much too low. I think there should be a means test, but not in the $50,000 per household range. I think it should be a lot higher. And this Mickey Mouse in there about pre-filing credit counseling and taking a financial management course, I see as more designed to discourage people from filing than being a helpful process to uh, educate people about how to avoid misusing credit. Steve, this is all very instructive. What do you spend your time at these days? Oh, I am, uh, I got to age 62 with an attractive uh, retirement opportunity from the law firm and a fine client with a small industrial development business that wanted an extra hand around, so I'm uh, having a good time. Well, I should let you get back to work, shouldn't I? <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Jack.